I think because without the arts, it's it's hard for. It sounds a bit highfalutin, but without the arts, it's it's hard for a community to know who they are. Mm. You know, it's about having the ability to tell our stories and to articulate our identity. Um, and the arts at every level, that's what it does, whether it's small-scale, highly experimental work or mass wide appeal work. Um, and and it's it's a thing that binds community and people together. And and for that reason, I kind of go, it's, it's important for the same reason that sport is important. Mm. It brings us together. It allows us to express our identity and allows us to celebrate who we are as a culture. You know, in that sense, th- those two things serve exactly the same purpose, mm. um, which is why I kind of, I, I get so frustrated with this perceived division, this kind of sense of either or between art and sports. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customised explorative research on key consumer markets, customers and population segments. Squareholes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behaviour change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by Geordie Brookman. Geordie is Artistic Director at State Theatre Company South Australia, a role he has held since 2012. We talk with Geordie towards the end of his highly successful time at the company. We go back to Geordie's childhood with a love of reading and with the arts in his DNA. We discuss his journey and the importance of theatre and the arts in our cultural fabric. A fascinating exploration into themes from the role of risk-taking and collaboration in theatre to the significant economic return of the arts. Geordie is soon to be setting up life in Berlin with his young family, a city that embraces the arts. Following State Theatre's next play, a one-man version of George Orwell's political classic, Animal Farm, in March 2019. It was wonderful to have an in-depth discussion with Geordie to share his story. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning... Thank you for joining us today, Geordie. Uh, I'm going to start off right back at the beginning like I do with all of these interviews. What were you like as a young boy? Oh, golly. Um, I'm, probably, I'm probably the wrong person to ask. Um, like we're always the wrong people to ask about ourselves. <laughs> um, I think, look, I think I was, I was pretty quiet uh, and sort of, I don't know, not serious, but certainly not a kind of... Uh, extrovert. Um, I grew up on a communal property uh, in Kangarilla that had three families on it and each of the three families had three kids. So, you know, there was me and my two brothers, but then it was like having another six um, surrogate siblings. So, you know, I guess, I guess the great thing about that is you, you had space for all different kinds of personalities and you didn't kind of, um, I didn't felt I didn't feel like I was, you know, being formed in relation to my brothers. It was a much right, wider, wider pool. Um, so, how many children were there on that? 
So there's nine in total yeah, okay. on that property and, uh, yeah, so but then I've got an older brother and a younger brother. Um, and, yeah, I guess I, I guess reasonably quiet and, and, and a little bit serious but, but very social and um, I guess just interested in, in words and stories quite, quite early on. Did you read a lot? Or I did, yeah. I read an enormous amount. Um, you know, I, uh, I actually ended up, Shift, partially shifting schools because of it. I started, I started school at the um, Waldorf School in Mount Barker, and but I kept kind of butting up against the limitations of um, in the system as it was then, uh, what they would let you read when, um, and I kept reading my way to the end of each year group library, and they wouldn't let me go up to a to another From year. Yeah, 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 and so there's just kind of a hunger for more. Um, and that was, you know, very much encouraged by my parents. My mum in particular read to us a lot and, um, and sort of encouraged us into books. Yeah. yeah. No, the, um, the state theatre company boardroom has got a beautiful, like, bookshelves around us. Very, um, it's, it's a it's yeah, nice I, sort of in this era of iPads and technology, it's nice to have books surrounding yeah, the boardroom. I, I, I always love to have books around. Um, we have a room in our house where, you know, one of the, it's like for years we'd been doing work on our house um, and it was all that kind of work that you don't notice but takes all of your spare money, you know, like fixing roofs and boring stuff like that. And we finally had a moment where we went, no, we're going we're gonna to create a big, beautiful bookcase and it's one of my favourite spots in the house just being surrounded by those books. And I tried, you know, I, got, I gave it a real go a couple of years ago. I, I tried to switch over um, to being a kind of Kindle an iPad person, um, and I can use an iPad for all sorts of things, but I still can't read books on on tablets. Yeah. There's, there's something it's about having tactiles, having the page. Yeah. Mm. Um, Jeff and Tina from Patch Theatre, they were both avid readers, so it's quite an interesting one. Mm. Can't, you can, it's a it's a sample of three, but um, but we've had a couple other readers. We had a guy from called Suet uh, in our second interview, and mm. he was from India and. Had a small box in the town that was their library, and he read, and it was his way of finding other parts of the world, and and, and, and that reading remained with him throughout his life. Mm-hmm. What did you get out of reading? What did you like about reading? I guess it was a, an opening up of imagination, um, and and this idea that you could you could kind of create whole worlds beyond your literal experience. So parachuting yourself into all sorts of experience. Um, and I read lots of different types. You know, I, I wasn't kind of just on one thing or the other. I think like all um, particularly probably um, young boys, I, I, I had a kind of a heavily fantasy-focused moment. You know, I found my way in through The Lord of the Rings and I stayed there for a few years. Um, but it was a real... Uh, it really deepened and widened my, my interest, I suppose. And then as I've got older, that... That interest in um, in fiction has really remained, um, but it's also expanded to sort of draw in lots of non-fiction reading as well. And I think the thing I find tricky these days is that if I'm if I'm directing a show, if I'm in the midst of rehearsals, I find it almost impossible to read fiction. Um, I can read non-fiction when I'm rehearsing, but I can't read fiction for some reason. Because you're already immersed in one story and be immersed in I guess in so. Yeah. I guess so. And so I kind of have to wait for these pockets of yeah, the year. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I, uh, we opened a show, The Gods of Strangers, a few weeks ago. And, you know, on the weekend after we finished that show, I, I sort of read 
Michael Ondaatje's new book in the space of a weekend because I've just been kind of waiting to do it. Yeah, that's great. So were you always interested in the arts? How did you go into um, arts or theatre? Or? Well, it's tricky. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say whether I was interested or whether it was just that I absorbed it. Um, both my parents are in the arts. My mother's a writer and my father's a producer and arts administrator. Um, so I, I grew up around it and, I, you know, I, I fell asleep in the corner of the bistro at the Festival Centre many times as a mm. kid and, um, and would indeed go in and visit... Um, my dad and also Tina Munn back when Tina worked worked with yeah. with Dad at the festival centre, um, and it and none of that seemed I guess as because it doesn't as a kid none of that seemed particularly That's just special life. That's or just different yeah. and you know I'd go along to all the back when the festival centre actually made musicals so I'd I'd go along to all of those with my dad and um, and so I guess you you just kind of absorb it and then what I what I got really interested in. Um, sort of two combined interests. One was in filmmaking and the other was in music. Um, you know, I, I played drums for a long time and and played in a couple of bands and it was kind of those two interests that were driving me. You know, mm. I, really, I, I really got into the idea of becoming a filmmaker. Um, but as I was getting, you know, partway through year 12, I started looking around for what I might do and, you know, I rang up the film, television and radio school in Sydney and so sort I of said, you know, I want to come to the come to the afters next year, and um, and they said, oh, you're too young. We won't take you for a number of years. Um, Had you made a short film? Or a yeah, film? I'd made short films at high school yeah. and stuff like that. Um, and so I sort of was in in this moment of going, oh, well, what do I do? And um, and I just kind of I found the drama course at Flinders, and and I was like, oh, well, this you know, this will be a good thing to do, and. You know, this will this will if I go and study theatre and theatre directing, that'll make me a better film director. Um, and then I got distracted, yeah, <laughs> and just that, yeah. and just kind of uh, I guess fell in love with making theatre, and and to this point haven't quite made my way back again. But yeah. it's certainly something I hope to do later in life. Well, the arts is in your DNA, yeah, very much, and it sounds like that desire to tell stories, mm. sort of what drove you to wanting to make films and now into theatre. Yeah. Is that fair? And that... Yeah, I think so. I think it's always been about story for me and about sharing stories and how how narrative affects people and kind of why we need it. Um, and then I guess the combined interest in music, it was I think the really big thing for me with that was really treasuring the... I guess the experience of live music and the way that it makes you feel, and kind of um, drifting the two things together, and 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 that becoming a very certain thing in my mind mm. that that good theatre should affect you the same way that great live music does, yeah. um, which is in a way I think that you can't quite articulate. It's a kind of gut connection. Um, so yeah, I think I think all of those things kind of drifted together, yeah. and then. And then a whole bunch of coincidence and luck and happenstance. You I guess. still play music? Um, I I don't really. Um, yeah, it, it. I played all the way through university, um, and and loved it, and had a band that was kind of progressing for a little while. But I think, I think with music, it was. Um, I was so, I was I was someone who loved playing with other musicians, and I I was never. 
I was never going to be the best drummer in the world. You know, I kind of worked at it until I was I was a decent functional sort of drummer, but I was never going to be an amazing uh, jazz drummer or punk drummer or something. I just I wasn't I wasn't naturally talented. Mm. Um, so I do miss it a little bit, but I think the the funny thing is is that the main thing I enjoyed was playing with other people and um, drums in particular. Uh, they're a hard they're a hard instrument to keep up by yourself. Yeah. And then life gets you need in the a way. Quiet room as well, you so. do, you do, <laughs> or, or, you or, do. Um, or good neighbours. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. So when you get to uni and you're just thinking in a film direction, and then mm. you go in a theatre direction, how do you? Like, there's so many, so many different roles. We're, we're involved in the film festival. Obviously, we've been mm. involved in, the, in state theatre, and, and until you get close, you don't even. It's just theatre. It's just it's just the film, and you don't necessarily obviously film. You have a whole list of people at the yeah. end who are involved, but. How, how do you find your role within, like obviously you went down the theatre route, but how do you find your your spot within that? Um, Does it just happen? Is it just by chance? I, I guess it's the part of the process that, you know, two things, the part of the process that makes you feel good and feel right doing it um, and then also I guess the part of the process that you feel like you have some um, ability to, to deliver and... I think, I think like most young artists, you know, I, I, I wrote a lot through high school and a little bit at uni um, and I acted all the way through high school and through my early years at uni. But with both of those things, I really, bit by bit, I, as I got to know other young artists, I, I slowly went, oh, okay, I understand how this works. I understand how writing works. I understand how acting works. But this person, this person and this person are much better at it than me. But... I understand their work. And so there was something about that, about, about going, okay, what feels right to me, what mm-hmm. feels good is being, I guess, sitting at the junction point between all of these different elements mm-hmm. in a piece of theatre. And, you know, I always think a good director, particularly when a play is getting onto the stage, is, is a bit like a conductor drawing together mm-hmm. all of these different instruments and um, making sure that they, that they complement each other and support each other. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's the being uh, being being an interpreter suits me. Yeah. Um, okay. As opposed to, I, I don't have a great deal of time for the for the sort of auteur myth about mm-hmm. directors, because even directors that we think of as auteurs normally rely on a very very specific group of collaborators to make their work. Um, I I'm much more into the the very very democratic idea of theatre making, which is about the way a group of people combine. Yeah, okay. Mm. So, in your current role as artistic director of state theatre, how long have you been in that role? Uh, six and a half years. Yeah. And you're leaving at the start of next year, is that right? Yes, yeah. I'm leaving in March, so it'll yeah. it'll just tick over seven years. Yeah. So, what like obviously, do you, do you have a sense that? Um, yeah, that, that you know it. You, you've got a strong. Um, like they, they comfort in what you do and what what you do well as a professional and is that yeah yeah I, think, I, 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 I do so. I think it's a I think particularly being an artistic director is it's a job that you grow into I don't think any artistic director arrives fully formed um, even if they've done that sort of job once or twice before elsewhere um, because it's about you creating a meeting point between yourself and an organization and an audience and a group of artists. Um, but I, I have I have become increasingly, 
I guess, confident in the role and confident in what I think the role is and should be and the responsibilities of it. Um, and, you know, at its, at its best moments, it brings me unbelievable joy and at its worst, it brings extraordinary stress and anxiety. Like, I think like any, um, like any sort of dream job, mm-hmm. which, you know, and that's, that's what it was for me. It was when, when I got that role, it was kind of a case of landing your dream job um, in my mind at the time much earlier than I expected to. Mm. But there's the hard work that goes into into that dream job, is that? Extraordinary amount yeah. of hard work. Um, and it, particularly in theatre, I think, you, you there's, there's all of that stuff in any industry about paying your dues and working your way up. But um, in theatre, I think the reality for most people is that means, you know, close to... I don't know, five to ten years of usually working for free. Um, And that's certainly what I did through my early and mid-twenties. And, you know, I hit a point in my mid-twenties where where I burnt out a little bit, where I just actually I couldn't keep up that rate of um, making stuff and working a bar job at night and always looking on to what the next project was. And never really getting paid much for it. And so I, I at a certain point, I, I stopped directing for about a year and a half. Um, and it was, it was really important. It was really important to know that I could, that I could stop, that I could find other things that I really loved doing. Um, but then it also refreshed me and it was actually, it was off the back of that time that I, I sort of hit a really um, creatively rich period that, then led me into. Can you explain that? What, what does it mean when you kind of find a creatively rich? Kind I, of I think it's. I think it's usually like you connect with a certain group of people and projects, and and I guess your view of a part of the world or a part of life kind of um, comes into focus for a moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that only happens for artists. It doesn't happen all the time. Mm. But um, it's a collaborative. It's very much collaborative. And so it it was a kind of a combination of projects. I was um, lucky enough that Brink Productions, who were at that point being led by uh, Dave Melor and Steve Mayhew, um, created this opportunity for me to um, direct a production of 448 Psychosis, Sarah Kane's unfinished last play hugely risky piece Mm. um and you know i had i had runs on the board in terms of creating independent theater and all of that but they were taking a risk on me as well and the combination of that and the particular group of artists that came together around it so it was the first time that i worked with jeff cobham um cameron goodall uh, michaela cantwell um ksenia logos um and lizzie falkland you know all of whom wonderful artists that i continued Mm. to collaborate with And it was the combination of that and then spending this time, spending this year working with um, Michael Gow in Queensland at Queensland Theatre in a literary management role, so not directing, but just spending that year with Michael, Mm. who's an extraordinary man and a wonderful artist. Um, And then off the back of that, directing um, Tender, which was the first play that Nikki Bloom, my partner, wrote. and that was linked to a whole bunch of artists in Sydney that mm-hmm. have remained very important to me. And so you probably couldn't pick two more different plays, but there was something about uh, the core of the material and the way that 
I, f- I, I found to approach both plays where everything just kind of came together. Yeah. And those two plays in terms of my early directing career probably did more for me than, than a number of others combined. Mm. Been that, that right, right time, yeah. being ready for it, yeah. right partners and yeah. collaborators. And you were associate director at State Theatre, and then you yes. went away, and then you came back again. Yes. What's What's the difference in sort of timings when you sort of you were obviously um, you're saying guess... you, you became artistic director younger than you probably would have thought? Yeah. You were associate director, and we always loved your place when you were an associate director as well. What's What's the difference between your first time at State Theatre and then coming back again? I guess they're very different. They're very different jobs. Um, Adam Cook was wonderful and generous enough to when he asked me to come on board as the associate, you know, the the main thing I remember him saying to me was, your job is to come here and take risks. And that's a it's a pretty extraordinary offer mm. to make to a young artist. And, you know, so it meant that my first play, my first full-length play for State Theatre um, in their season was I think probably one of the most mystifying, hardest plays in the world, which was a, attempts on her life. But as it was, it, it became this joyful production that became a kind of statement of intent mm-hmm. to, to really mix things up. And and I think actually in, in, in really healthy terms, um, Adam and I made fairly different styles of theatre. Yeah. And, and that was a good thing. It meant that we kind of... Um, the work bounced off each other and, and we, were, we were diverse and um, it meant that the company had a good mix. Um, and, you know, it was, a, it, it was a wonderful three years full of really kind of rich work opportunities and in one of those sort of quirks, I guess, the, the moment that I came in and took the job was also the moment that I started getting freelance offers from everywhere else. Yeah, okay. So it was very, very busy. It was a really busy three years. I was, I was usually making three or four shows a year between here and interstate. Um, but it, it set me up in many ways. Um, it, it, it taught me how to direct that regularly because it, it requires a certain kind of endurance um, and you realise that you can't, um, you can't completely disappear into a show because you always have to have one eye on the horizon and I guess when I came out the other end of it, um, it coincided with Nikki and I having our first child and, you know, I I, I came out into a oh, almost a year and a half's worth of um, fairly thorough unemployment. Um, you know, I did, I did one show at State and I got a little bit of professional development money to go and expand my mind overseas. Um, but it was actually perfect timing um, and meant that there was just uh, time for regeneration and renewal and and I'd basically just committed to um, working on the Barrio uh, project at the festival with Jeff Cobham and while I was in the midst of that, the job at State came up um, and... My father and I had talked kind of in a pie-in-the-sky pie fashion a few times about sort of how great would it be to work together. And I knew, I knew that he was itching to shift back from Sydney but didn't have the excuse. And so we just sort of thought, and it was one of those rare moments where both executive roles came up at once at the company and we thought, well, 
this kind of opportunity might never present itself again. And we might apply and they might go, who are you kidding? We're not going to appoint a, a father and son team. Um, but but it worked, you know, what, whatever it was, the what we took into that process worked and um, and I think it it became a really excellent combination because it was this, I guess, balancing of um, youth and experience mm, and um, I'd push him where he needed to be pushed yeah. and he'd, uh, he'd make me slow down where I needed to slow down a little bit. Yeah. Just, and I'll come back to that in a moment, mm. but when you were given permission or almost told in your time as Associate Director of State Theatre, you were, you were there to take risks. Mm. What does that mean and what does that, like, what, what does that, does that, obviously that's not, not just a carte blanche freedom, yeah. it means that you it's, need to be bold and... Like, yeah, it means, it, ne- it means you need to be bold and ambitious and you need to be willing to fail spectacularly, um, which is a very precious gift and I think just about every single, certainly for directors but I would argue also for playwrights and actors, every single successful artist at one point has been given space and permission to fail by someone senior to them. Um, Because a lot of the time if you come in as a freelancer and it's your first gig, there is this horrific pressure that if you don't nail the show, you won't come back. Mm. Um, But having the security of, of going, I can fail and as long as I fail with the right intent, then we're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And I guess I just went in with the guiding principle that um, anyone should be able to walk in off the street and feel like they can access the theatre that I make. You know, like I can make it as weird, as abstract, as odd as I like, but it has to be accessible mm-hmm. to anyone. Um, and, and I think that, that's been the key thing for me is, has been about having a deep sense of respect for the audience, even when I'm doing something that maybe is intentionally meant to provoke or upset them. Um, a respect and, in terms of being needing it to be quality irrespective or like... Yeah, it's, it's about quality. It's about never talking down to people or, or, um, or drifting into what I would term that kind of, that condescension of high art. Mm. Um, I think it's... I think it's about realising that theatre has to connect with, with the heart first and the head second. Um, yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing, but it's, I, I, think, I think it dawned on me that you can, you, you go in with the confidence of youth and thinking that you know everything. Um, but then at a certain point it dawned on me that a lot of the people coming to state theatre have been coming to state theatre for 20 or 30 years, which means they'd seen all of Rosalba Clemente's work, they'd seen all of Simon Phillips's work, they'd seen all of John Gaydon's work, they'd seen all of Jim Sharman's work, they'd seen years' worth of Adelaide festivals. Mm. They were incredibly theatre literate. And if they ever got resistant or grumpy about a piece of work, it's probably because we weren't hitting the right quality level. Yeah, okay. Um and so the quality is the key. Like we've done a fair bit of work, uh, yeah. research work in the arts, yeah. and, and the quality is that if once the quality starts to dip and, and sway, yeah. or yeah. I think that's almost like um, it's a burning deck, isn't it? Really, if you yes. if you there's something wrong and, and, and the quality is falling back, then you then your supporters start to um, 
yeah, they drift. start to flounder and yeah. sort of start to move away. Yeah, yeah I agree. So as long as so, so if somebody's going to see a performance and it's a risky performance, mm. what do you want them leaving? Obviously, it depends on the performance, but you want them leaving going being moved or yeah I, I guess you want the, you want them to be moved you want them to have connected emotionally you want them to be a little bit destabilized in terms of you know you want you want their worldview shaken up a little bit depending on the show depending on the content um if you're creating something that's got a particular political viewpoint or agenda you want to make sure that you're encouraging people to question their own viewpoints and agendas um yeah it's 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 always about finding a point of provocation so that the audience goes home hopefully asking questions about the work but also asking themselves questions about so it's themselves. not a passive exercise no. sort of it's yeah no like i think i think we you know we're living in a world that is so dominated by visual media now um that it is incredibly easy for us to consume a lot of really high level passive experiences mm. And I think the important thing for theatre is to ensure that it's not passive because mm. that's actually that's the dividing point between television and theatre is that television is a passive experience mm-hmm. um, because of that, the distance that the screen creates. But there's no, there's no barrier with yeah, theatre. Yeah, some of the, I think it might have been some of the work we've done for state theatre is people describe you see a movie, the movie's done, even if yeah. it's a confronting movie, but you move on with your life. Yeah. You go to a good theatre and you thinking about it a week or so later and trying to yeah. unpack it. But on that, I guess my sense is there's people who get the theatre and people who don't. Um, and they're probably go, I don't want to go to something that's going to be confronting or unsettle mm. me. I mm. want to go to something that's going to make me laugh or, mm. or happy or I want mm. to go to um, a, a big big act that might be in a, mm. a big big theatre. What would you say to people that maybe they actually might like the theatre if they actually went along and tried it? they just got this view that I don't like that kind of thing what's what's your you must come up i think it's I, I, I think it's all about finding the right piece of theater for that person to access because once once you kind of have that right experience um it becomes a habit and and also the the, the sort of breadth of what you're willing to consume really expands um and I think, you know, I think theatre absolutely should entertain. It should make people fall about laughing. Mm. Um, I, I always used to think, oh, I, I don't do comedy. I can't do comedy. Um, but I've had some of my most joyful experiences in the last few years creating comedy and realising what a devilishly difficult and wonderfully demanding form it is. So I think it's, I th- I think it's about being patient, but it's also about not, um, again, not being condescending or high-minded about it, but, but simply going, well, everybody needs an entry point. Um, just like, you know, just like if people catch the bug for a certain kind of music or, um, or, or a kind of visual art, you know, it's, it's, it's a pathway. You're usually going to start with something gentler mm-hmm. and more accessible and then, as your taste deepens, you're gonna you're gonna go broader and broader and broader. Mm-hmm. But I think I mean I think the big thing about theatre is that it's an experience that is built to have with other people. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly social art form um, that you can share and that you can and share. And, yeah. yeah, and that and that it's almost that that's one of the really important things I think. And that those are the kind of those groups of audience members are the ones I love 
watching the you know the we have some groups of subscribers who they will have been coming as like a, a 40 strong group for 15 20 years mm. together and i i just kind of think what a wonderful vital way to keep themselves socially connected mm. so and how much of a gap did you have between that that time at state theater and then coming back again it was about um it was around about a year and a half yeah, okay. in the end so yeah. then you were coming back though and um I'm assuming there was some sense of vulnerability coming back again or was it sort of... Yeah, or, or, or as I guess a sense of having to... You sort of have to redefine yourself a bit because, um, as, I, as I said, they're, they're very different roles. The, the industry carries high expectations of you no matter which one of those jobs that you're in. You know, I, I remember having that conversation both with Nisha Jelk and with... Ellie Carapetis when they came into the resident job um, that, you know, the industry expects you to take mm. risks, to work hard and to, to t- make the most of the opportunity. Um, the responsibility is sort of vaster as, as the AD. You, you have a responsibility not just to the industry and to the artistic cohort, um, not just to the subscriber audience, you have this kind of responsibility to the whole state um, because we, you know, I don't, we, we don't have enough regularly producing companies in South Australia mm-hmm. is my view. And as a result, there's an enormous pressure on state theatre to, um, to, to deliver a very, very diverse spread of work to make sure that South Australian audiences are getting the experience they should. So... I guess it's that thing of, of, of stepping from a, a kind of support role into a leadership role, which I'm kind of glad I did it as a director because as a director you're used to leading projects and leading a team and you sort of carry that into an artistic directorship. Um, the, the benefit certainly was that I had such a kind of hand-in-glove working relationship with my father um and so we were able to drift into each other's territory very very easily um you know because of because i've done a lot of independent theater and worked in some other roles um i'm quite used to both producing and administrating and so i you know i had a point of view i had an opinion on all of those sides of the company um and because he, while, you know, for the, the previous decade he'd been running Sydney Theatre Company, but he's got a very storied history as an artistic director of festivals, so he's, yeah, got, okay. he's got strong artistic opinions. Um, and so that, that made the relationship really robust because we weren't afraid to challenge each other mm-hmm. and we didn't view... Each didn't view the other as having kind of all of the expertise in any mm-hmm. given area. Um, and that was, you know, I think I think that was a good combination, and I think it was what the company needed mm-hmm. at the time—a mm-hmm. um, real kind of unity of purpose in that sense. Yeah, but your confidence must have built as you, you sort of you obviously you yeah. make a plan and you, you put that forward to yeah. the board or whoever the, the, the yeah. employees, but then you need to actually prove and and deliver and conquer. Yeah, and in fact, you know, I think <laughs> I think we were probably we were probably too bullishly optimistic with what we thought we could do and how quickly we could do it. But 
bit by bit we we kind of achieved all of the stuff mm. we wanted to achieve and the biggest part of that was widening the company's um access and its connection to audiences um and knowing that yes we have this core group of subscribers that are incredibly loyal incredibly valuable but actually the bulk of the growth for the company in the last six years has been in the single ticket market so the wow. company's connecting to a lot more people in uh, in a lot more areas than it used to um and you know i'm I, I don't really sign up to the view that the subscription model is is dying you know people have been saying that that model has been dying for about 20 years now um but there's no doubt that people's ticket buying habits are changing mm. and adelaide has always been a late booking town um other places aren't as much no no, okay. no because there's more demand so we've i think we've we get a bit lazy here. Because yeah. you know you get a ticket. Yeah, thinking we can turn up on the day. And so the the aim for me was always getting to the point where we could prove that untrue, where we, we started selling out shows and you couldn't just turn up on the day anymore. And, you know, I'd love to say we're doing that on every single show, but we, we're doing it with enough regularity mm. to create a sense of urgency, I suppose. Yeah. I know sort of seeing I went to a few opening nights, obviously, but... And you could see the confidence building in, in yourself and, mm. and your dad, Rob, um, in doing the, 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 the talks. Um, mm. And you were, you were hitting record, and you yeah. record after record, and yeah. you can almost like must have found after six, nine, 12 months of going, ah. <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny though because you never, you never really relax because the problem with um, – well, I was doing another interview yesterday and um, it was like the, pro- the problem with we, – we had a – we had an absolute record-setting year last year. Like the company did the most business it's ever done. Um, but as I was explaining uh, to Deborah Bogle yesterday, I, <laughs> was that the only problem with that is you set yourself a really high bar, mm. um, and and you, expected to, and you can't it. necessarily repeat that ad nauseum. You know, mm. you can't put companies companies cannot simply exist on continual growth cycles. It doesn't work. Um, and you also programming is is partially intentional, partially good planning, partially great strategic and artistic thinking, and then there's a whole big dose of luck. And so to have a year like last year, where we had, where, where in the space of one year you have something as kind of, uh, I don't know, I would say decade defining as the Secret River, at the same time as a production as big and barnstorming as 1984 and then really major productions within the company of A Doll's House and Macbeth, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a formula of productions that is very hard to repeat. Mm. And so I guess what, what you want to create is an environment where the company is nimble enough to expand into those projects when the opportunity presents itself but also to contract back to to create smaller experiences when that suits so it might not always be about growth 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 it might be about no. some years it's stronger and some years it shrinks yeah, back and, yeah and, and and i think you always want you always want a kind of a steady level base level that you continue to deliver um but i think if you if if you're trying to land secret river on every show you, you're probably going to send yourself bust mm. Um, and, you know, my, my view is state theatre company punches way above its weight. You know, we, we create, 
10 shows, sometimes more a year, which is only a couple of shows less than, say, Sydney Theatre Company or Melbourne Theatre Company. Um, but we do it with a fifth of the staff and a much smaller mm-hmm. budget. Um, and so you, you just you have to be careful of your human resource as well and realise that creating good art takes time um, and that there's no guarantee that every show is going to work mm-hmm. because it's, a, um, it's very unpredictable theatre. Um, you, can, you can think you've put the perfect team together with the perfect play, but for whatever reason, sometimes it doesn't gel. Mm. Can, for people who didn't see uh, A Secret River, mm. can you explain just briefly like the scale of the project and why it was so important? It was certainly well received. Yeah, I, I think it was, it was important on a number of levels. Um, you know, the, the scale of it was just extraordinary. I mean, we were creating from nothing, we were creating an 800-seat theatre in a quarry in Tea Tree Gully and hoping to draw, you know, seven or 800 people a night for four weeks out to Tea Tree Gully. And one of the, you know, one of the truths that everybody says of Adelaide is that people won't go outside the CBD. Mm. So it was enormously risky and relying a little bit on this vague, distant cultural memory of people going to the Mahabharata in 1988. Um, but so there was that, that scale side of things, of actually constructing that venue, making a venue that could house it, mm. everything that, that comes with it, taking care of those artists, allowing for all of the audience members, being in an incredibly risky situation where if you get rain, you're stuffed and there being no space in the schedule to recover shows if you lose them, but also being in such challenging uh, situation that it, it, it wasn't something you could insure. Um, because the insurance was so prohibitive. Um, but then on, from an artistic point of view, it's, it's a piece that is, it is, um, well, it's, I think it's quite extraordinary. It's, it's difficult in some ways. It's divisive in some ways. Um, I think it's a play that for, you know, for, for, for parts of our, Aboriginal community is incredibly hard to experience because there's so much trauma contained in it. Um, But I I kind of go back to my first experience with it, seeing it at Sydney Theatre Company some years before and kind of coming out at the end of it and going, you know, actually for the last three hours, I've had the opportunity to unpack the thing that we don't speak about in Australia, which is our white cultural shame and guilt for the crimes of our forefathers. Um, and in that sense, I think it's, it's a hugely cathartic piece of theatre mm-hmm. and, and one that brought together some of the best artists in the country. Mm. Um, and then, but then I, I, I guess the extra thing was experiencing it in that setting, in the natural world. You know, th- there wasn't, because I ended up associate directing on it, there wasn't kind of a night, I was there every night, um, where I wouldn't get kind of shivers down my spine when I, when I sat there um, listening to Stevie Goldsmith sing. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, I, I think it, it provided enormous cathar- catharsis um, and a kind of reckoning and a little bit of hope to a mm. lot of people. 
Um, and for the company um, to access an audience that wide and that significant, uh, the company's never had an audience that big before. Mm. Um, you know, it was over 14,000 people. Um, it's, it's quite an exciting thing, but yeah. one that you can't necessarily repeat. No, that's great. Um, I remember talking to you, I might get the words wrong, but when, when um, your father, Rob Brookman, uh, first started or first came back as um, chief executive, I think he was talking about um, needing to give opportunities, the business behind um, the theatre company, opportunities mm. for, for young actors mm. and, and other support. But then over the time, over uh, since that, that point, you're exporting, you've got, mm. you're travelling obviously around regional South Australia, but also far beyond that. Can you explain that a bit more? Yeah, I guess that was always part of the ambition um, for the company and that is one, an ambition that certainly I shared with Job, with Rob and that I also share very much with Jody Glass, um, which, which is both an ambition to take South Australian stories to the country and to the world, but it's also there's a practical element to it, which is it, it's about our industry being viable and for artists in South Australia to make a full-time living, uh, we need to be touring. We need to be mm-hmm. on the road because otherwise there just is not enough work. Um, and we were also confident that the work we were making here was as good if not better than a lot of the work being made elsewhere. So we, we started pushing out from day one and we did it initially through seeking out um, co-productions with other companies to, to ensure that our work would travel and to ensure that our artists would travel. And then steadily, as the company gained a reputation for that kind of quality work, um, we started being able to simply sell on our productions without taking on co-producers. Um, so whether it's, you know, whether it's this year we, we took um, sensibility, Sense and Sensibility to Canberra and Geelong straight after Adelaide, you know, those venues have become basically regular customers mm. of ours every year now. Um, but we also had a major ambition to go to have more of a presence regionally, like the fact that the company is called the State Theatre Company I think yep. is quite significant and um, it's not the Adelaide Theatre Company. So we've the company over the last 10 years I think has gone from starting out with a three-venue regional tour to now doing a 17-venue regional tour um, and making major work in the regions, which is... A, is Why does that matter? Why does it matter to get out to the regions? Obviously, you call well, it the state theatre company, but... Because I think theatre should be accessible to everybody and and really elite-level theatre should be accessible to everybody. Um, and there's a part of it for me which is also it's about respecting those communities it's about respecting the investment that that dunstan's government made in creating the helpman theaters around the regions um and i think it's i think it's good for the work uh it's like it's like performing to high school audiences um they can be devilishly difficult but they keep you honest they make Mm -hmm. you do your best work and i think it's the same in the regions you know the audiences don't owe you anything. Mm. Um, you have to work hard, and that's that's good for artists. Um, and then, and then there's kind of a natural expansion from that to, to national touring. Whether it be, again, we don't we don't kind of we don't 
approach it with any sense of division between touring to Sydney or touring to Sedona. You know, it's for us it's the same exercise mm. um, a little bit in the same way if it's London or New York. So you've taken shows to New Zealand and Yep, London. so we've this, this year we've been in New Zealand and Singapore um, with 1984 and uh, in a couple of weeks Rumpelstiltskin will go to London um, which will mean the company's been on stage in London every year for the last three years, which um, so for two and a half years running, it's been things I know to be true, uh, the work that we made with Frantic Assembly, um, which has just been an enormous success over there. It's had two two different four-month-long seasons in the UK. Um and then Rumpelstiltskin going over and a few years ago we took Pinocchio to New York. So that kind of large-scale international touring is is very satisfying mm. and I think all the more so because it's normally the way that companies are able to access international touring is through festivals for kind of very short one-off seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but pleasingly with both of the windmill collaborations, so Rumpelstiltskin and Pinocchio and with Things I Know To Be True, uh, they've all been standalone seasons, um, and yeah, and I think you know, I that's think, I think impre- it's, it's very impressive. And it's that, it's, it's that I get that sense that often people don't understand the theatre locally, um, but certainly don't understand the theatre companies actually travelling, yeah. doing quality performances in Adelaide across Australia and, and overseas is, is, is amazing, and, yeah. and it's a big change. Or big transition over the last few years. In yeah, and that. I guess I, I guess it's it's you want you want the local audience to be to be proud of their theatre mm. company, mm. and we feel like if we're kicking kicking goals nationally and internationally, then that gives our local audience something to be proud of, and and a great sense that you know we can genuinely say to them, you guys are the ones who are there at the beginning. You're always the first audience. You get mm. you get these shows before anybody else does. Yeah. And you commented that we kind of need to do that. We do. The market's too small to to just survive yeah. locally. Yeah, I think um, I think amongst the sort of festivalisation of South Australia, I think um, the thing that's gotten a little bit lost is is the fact that you know the festival, whatever kind of festival you may be talking about, they're they're essentially presenting. Uh, they're presenting opportunities. They're they're not so much making opportunities, and yet for artists to have a long term, full time living in the state, they need to be making work. Um, and I think you know, I think going into the future, I think that's that's what the industry has to approach, and hopefully that's what the government can approach as well. Is is really looking closely at how we prioritise the funding of actually making work in South mm, Australia. Making work. Yeah. Um, performance, performing locally and then exporting. Locally. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. We talk so much locally about entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, but that's really what the arts and filmmaking, et cetera, is, isn't it really? It and is. It's often Absolutely. That disconnect, I guess, sometimes is going, well, there's been an entrepreneur and then there's, yes. there's the arts, but the arts has not been an entrepreneur. Well, it is. You need to it employ is. people and yeah. you need to raise funds and... Um, find I, an audience. I think often. Rapid fire and, I think yeah. often we just we don't speak loudly enough about it, or perhaps directly enough about it. Um, 
because our focus is always on making the work. Uh, but it's the arts are an excellent economic multiplier mm. and in terms of every dollar of subsidy the arts gets, it turns it into many, many, many more um, and is competitive with many other industries on that front. But for, for the community and the audience to kind of invest themselves in the arts locally, they need to, I think they need to feel like it's a constantly operating thing and that they can invest their time, money and emotion in what local artists are making and not just in, you know, the, the latest commercial show from elsewhere that they are told yeah, is wonderful. Okay. That's interesting. That, um, when we're talking to clients and organisations about um, disruption and mm. people get excited about I don't know, nothing wrong with there probably is something wrong actually with people likes of Uber, but it's it's we're we're bringing in all this disruption. We need to get better at exporting disruption, and that's the same thing when it gets to yeah theatre and the arts, isn't it? Really, rather than importing everything, it's about exporting, yeah, producing our own and exporting, and that's what that so. economic benefit. I, th- I think we're very we're very good at being proud of things and claiming things after the fact. You know, it is something like I, th- I think in film terms, I think of a project like. Um, Jennifer Kent's wonderful film, The Babadook, you know, just an extraordinary piece of filmmaking that I'm incredibly proud that that South Australia was the state that supported the making of that film. But it was still made on the smell of an oily rag mm-hmm. and and if it hadn't been a hit at film festivals, it probably would have disappeared from kind of local consciousness. So it's about how we kind of elevate our our connection to and our, the way we value what's being made here. Um, and I think there's there's organisations that do it. Like I think the Adelaide Film Festival does an extraordinary job in terms of the way that it, it balances bringing extraordinary film work in but then also actually being a partner and a funder of um, mm-hmm. amazing work that's made here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's it. I was... Uh, the last film festival we've been involved about the same time as I've been involved in the state theatre and there's 147 or so different feature-length mm. films and mm. a whole lot of else and you kind of go, oh, that's kind of cool. That's yeah, just, it's amazing. That happens over time and it's that need for commitment. Um, I've kind of touched on it already, but do you have a sense that the community supports, understands and supports the arts and then also on the other side the government understands and supports the arts? Um, I think the community definitely does. I think there's probably parts of the community that support the arts and engage with the arts without realising that they're doing so. So how does communities support and understand? Um, well, I think at, at, at the top level you have, you have people who are actively engaged, ticket buyers, um, you have donors, sponsors, you know, you have people who actively, consciously support the art form, whatever art form it may be. Um, but then there, there are kind of all of the, the trickle-down elements of it which, which go through um, education and community work um, where, you know, somebody, somebody doing a, a Sunday painting class down in the Southern Vales may not consider themselves to be engaged with or supporting the arts, but in fact they are. 
Um, so I think it's I think it's absolutely stitched into the community in a very deep way. I think um, I think generally the government does support the arts. I think I, I find it very sad that the arts isn't considered for whatever reason isn't considered a vote winner, and th- and therefore is often pushed aside to a degree, um, or, or not even pushed aside, just not really given any airtime. Um, but there is, you know, you, uh, you know, from spending time with, with a lot of people involved in government, you know, there's an enormous amount of passion within different mm-hmm. levels of government, um, for, for all sorts of art forms. Um, but I think it's, I think it's, I think it, I think it, that point of view has taken a bit of a battering over the last five or six years, particularly during the, um, the period when the massive amount of funds were cut from the Australia Council, I think that was a really low point, a real dark point where the industry started to ask fairly deep questions about whether it was valued. Um, but I think in Australia we're, we're in an interesting position in, in that we exist somewhere in between the American tradition, which is based around very little, if any government funding and a huge reliance on philanthropy and the European tradition, which is a tradition of very heavy government investment and subsidy. Um, And we sit somewhere in between. Mm. And it's kind of like we haven't quite worked out which sort of society we want to be. Mm. Um, And I think sometimes that holds us back. Yeah. Why does it matter to our cultural fabric to have a strong arts and cultural ecosystem? Well, I think because without the arts, it's it's hard for... It sounds a bit highfalutin, but without the arts, it's, it's hard for a community to know who they are. Mm. You know, it's about having the ability to tell our stories and to articulate our identity. Um, and the arts at every level, that's what it does whether it's small scale highly experimental work or mass wide appeal work um and and it's it's a thing that binds community and people together and and for that reason i kind of go it's it's important for the same reason that sport is important Mm. it brings us together it allows us to express our identity and allows us to celebrate who we are as a culture. You know, in that sense, those two things serve exactly the same purpose, Mm. Um, which is why I kind of, I I get so frustrated with this perceived division, this kind of sense of either or between art and sports. Mm. Well, Lena in in her interview was talking about when she went to Greece and she said, well, it's their sports mad, their art's mad and it's it's just part of your life and it's what you do and we were seeing to... I don't think it's an education thing. It's just a little more understanding. You don't need to pick a side. You can be no, both. <laughs> no, and I, 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 it feels like there's occasionally like there's progress there, but it's, um, you know, it's like it's wonderful to meet people like Gavin Wanganeen who had such a celebrated career mm. but is now finding a new phase of life as an artist. Um, but also so many of the artists I know are absolute sports nuts. And it gets kind of frustrating to think that we live in this world that's mm. apart from that because um, 
just like we go to the theatre or go to live music for an intense emotional experience, it's the same reason you go to sport. Yeah, 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 you know, right. um, you just yell a bit more at the sport. Mm-hmm. But that importance of a, a government and community supporting yeah. the arts and culture well into the future, maybe beyond election cycles, is is a critical one. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think it as much as is possible, it needs it needs to be a kind of embedded bipartisan view. Um, and, you know, I think you need, yes, of course, you, the, the city needs great infrastructure and great facilities, but the city also needs a community of people who make work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel, I feel like that the priorities have, have gotten a little bit skewed over the last few years in South, South Australia and the focus has been so much on bricks and mortar that there has been some underinvestment in the makers themselves. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I'm confident that'll turn around. But, um, but I think it's, I think, I think that's the thing. It, we, we have to remember that you don't, when you go and see a great piece of theatre, it's, um, it's not the foyer or the seat that you remember. It's the work that's on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where my focus sits. Yeah. Towards the start of the interview, you talked about your love of reading, mm. uh, filmmaking, and good narratives, and that's obviously that's come through in in your uh, your theatre. Over the last year, there's sort of stories that you're like obviously some of the plays you've had on that you're the stories that needed to be told that you've been proud of that have been told. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there's there's kind of a few over my tenure, and and you sort of have different points of pride. Some some are points of pride around things that the company has done as a group and some are about, you know, of course, as, as, as a sort of individual artist. Um, but, you know, I'm immensely proud of, of what we managed to do with things I know to be true, you know, the, taking this sort of little domestic opera, <laughs> is the way I always thought of it, um, set resolutely in Adelaide and seeing that piece of work connect on one of the biggest stages in the UK was a huge kind of point of achievement and pride, I think, for the whole company um, and really gave us faith that the work we were making was at the top level. Um, I guess over the last little while, you know, look, I'm, I'm really proud of the show we've got on stage at the moment, The Gods of Strangers, to, to create a trilingual piece of theatre is a huge achievement and to not only do that but to create a piece like that as, you know, a piece of historical fiction set in regional South Australia and to open the show in Port Pirie in regional South Australia, um, which is a huge undertaking, mm. um, felt like a real high watermark as well. And the, uh, But I guess the, the main points of pride have been about seeing artists develop, you know, seeing um, when when I was starting in my first year and when uh, Nisha Jelk came into the company and seeing her grow as a director and over the last six years create this kind of series of really beautiful, memorable, um, unique productions and and be- become a really uh, definable voice. Mm-hmm. And to watch that happen with with Eleanor as a, as a playwright as well has been very satisfying. And then... And then for me, it's you know it's been about the really rich relationships we've we've had with writers um, like Sue Smith and 
Phil Kavanagh, um, Nikki Bloom, uh, you know, watching these writers grow mm. over mm. a series of projects is, is always satisfying. Yeah. What, what, are, what are stories you think still need to be told about oh. Australia and whatever th- it might be, those sort of topics that you well, would I think like? Well, to- I, I think The Gods of Strangers has been a real lesson in that sense, um, you know, kind of uncovering this little gem of history mm. that is such a compelling story that no one has really thought to tell before. Compelling in what way? What, what's, what's the? Well, I think it's 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 not. You wouldn't say it's a forgotten part of our history, but it's a critical part of our history. When you look at all of the elements of it that come together, where you're looking at the way that global conflict and politics impacted a very specific place in regional South Australia, and how that then impacted the way that South Australia was formed as a state and as a community. Um, and for the kind of Anglo population of South Australia to, to, to look back at ourselves and go, oh, God, yeah, we did unfairly in turn huge amounts of um, Italians, Japanese and Germans mm-hmm. during the Second World War. You know, it's very easy to put out of your mind and to not look back. Um, but I guess for me it was about that, that larger sense of we are a country, well, defined first by by invasion, but since then defined by migration. And that, that whenever we hit these moments where the, company, the, the country is discussing migration or treatment of refugees or all of those issues where, where you have some people shouting loudly that we should be shutting the doors, mm. all you have to do is look back at Australia's history and go, well, the thing that has made us the country we are is the influx of all of these mm-hmm. amazing cultures from around the world. So I guess I guess I love the specificity of the story, but its ability to speak so widely. Um, I think there's there's endless amounts of stories that need to be told. I think that's that's the difficulty is picking picking which ones, and you often you often kind of get not obsessed with, but you get kind of connected to certain types of stories for a mm. while as an artist. Um, you know, I, I sort of had a period of being very interested in people's, uh, I guess, midlife personal relationships, um, which is what drew me, oddly enough, it's what drew me into the combination of A Doll's House and Macbeth in the middle of last year um, and then connected on to Vale at the end of last year that all three of those plays were about how key long-term relationships can turn toxic Mm -hmm. and why they turn toxic. Um, So it's it's partially defined by the stories that urgently need to be told for socio-political reasons and the stories that feel right Mm -hmm. to tell. And gender's been a conversation you've had in... Some of your plays, like sort of like very much in the club and the lights, and yeah, very much. And I think that's that's very it's important and pertinent at the moment. I think we're going through a big moment of shift and change, and um, and I, I I think I hope a sort of breakthrough moment culturally about the way not only the way gender is viewed, but I guess um, wider issues of of equality and respect. Um, and, you know, I think we've seen a big change within theatre itself, actually, in gender terms. We've, in the last decade, 
the industry has basically remade itself into a gender equitable industry. Right. Um, and that's taken a lot of doing but I think, I think we've gone from the point where basically none of the companies in the country were gender equitable to the point where now all of them are. Mm. So what next? What do you think yeah. your last play is? Animal Farm. Animal Farm? Yeah. So one, you know. When's that? That's in? That's in, lands in March next year. So we're just in, in the kind of preparation phase for that at the moment and Again, I guess a little bit like when we produced 1984, it's um, it's just a moment that feels right. Mm. I, the, to be perfectly honest, the whole idea of living in a post-truth world terrifies me. Um, and the idea that, you know, this, this fashion that is or this permission that is coming through for our politicians to just be able to blatantly lie to us mm. I think is horrific. I think our political discourse is about as low as it's ever been. Mm. Um, There's research showing that, yeah. Yeah, and I would include Australia in that. I'm not just talking about Trump um, or the European far right. I think it's it's worldwide. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, Orwell has a lot to say to us at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm looking forward to making that, but I'm also, I guess I'm looking forward to it as well because it's it's going to be small and strange and um, one actor, is that right? One actor, yeah. yes, the wonderful Renato Mussolino. Um, and and there's a, you know, there's a slightly uh, nostalgic element to it, which is it's it's circular. You know, um, Renato, well, at the last minute, made my first show with me as artistic director and I wanted to make my last show with him as well. Um, yeah. So that okay. feels pretty That's good. beautiful. Yeah. And post that, what plans? Uh, post or? that, uh, big big life changes. Um, so I'll basically finish at the company at the end of March and by mid-April we, uh, my partner and my two boys and I should by mid-April next year be living in Berlin. Um, That's exciting. Which has been, you know, a it's desire a and, a and a want design. we've had, had for quite a while. Um, but I think we also hit that point where... We went, actually, you know, if we're going to do this at a time that is good for the kids where they're able to... How old are your kids? They're four and seven. Um, And so we know they're at the point where they can quite quickly become bilingual without it being too stressful. Um, They're amazing little child brains. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, I guess it's a moment of just throwing all the cards up in the air and seeing where they land. You know, there's... um, there's bits and pieces of opportunity for both of us in the UK and Europe and the US, um, stuff that we'd... we'd writing. Like writing and writing. Nikki's writing and, and then directing opportunities for me. But the sorts of things that we can't we can't really pursue until there. we have the freedom to do so. Um, okay. So it's it's exciting, and but it's very undefined. We're kind of approaching it going, we might be there for a year, we might be there for 10. So what do you like about Berlin? Uh, I like the way they live life. Um, they're very community focused. Everything is everything is very based around the kind of the small community groups. Even the way they, um, I think they do medium density housing better than anywhere in the world. You know, the, just the way that they create all of these miniature 
apartment block communities. It's not that kind of anonymous, faceless apartment living that we tend to have here. Um, I love the way that they value the arts. Uh, it's a city that just it takes risks, and it. Um, I like I like that Berlin reveals itself slowly. It's a legendary city, but I think it would be very easy to go for a three or four day visit and not understand why everybody gets so excited about it. You mm. have to you have to kind of spend time there and let the city come to you in a way. Um, and it's a place just so infused with uh, history, um, almost at a depth that as Australians we have a hard time understanding. Um, but, yeah, and I, and I love that it's at the centre of things. Mm. That's mm. awesome. Uh, we started off with you as a young boy loving reading uh, in regional South Australia, in regional South Australia, yeah, ish. Yeah, pretty well, ish. Whereabouts? Kangarilla. So, Kangarilla, okay. Yeah. Southern Vales. Yeah. I okay. guess it's regional. Yeah. Um, what, what are your couple suggestions for young people, children, whoever, moving forward, however you want to take that, of what you, a successful life? What, what's, mm. what have you kind of on reflecting back? What, what, what do you... Uh, well, I think, I think reading is a really important thing. Mm. Um, crea- having those experiences where it is just about what you can create inside of your head as opposed to the dominant fashion at the moment, which is to experience these worlds which are fully articulated for you. Like I think, I think, I think gaming and movies and TV, it's extraordinary what they're doing at the moment. It is amazing. But I feel like if kids don't create the space to feed their own imaginations and test their own imaginations, then we're slowly going to lose a certain sort of inventiveness so I think it's about creating time for those those connections to to words and connections to music um, and connections to other people. Uh, you know, that's that's the sort of thing that I see drifting. That 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 irony that as we all become more and more connected, we actually become more and more isolated mm-hmm. from each other. Um, so you know, I I made the decision a few years ago to to just remove myself from social media which is frustrating for people sometimes it's frustrating for my marketing department um but but it's also been really healthy um because it means that there's an onus on me to connect to people properly um so i think it's important for kids to connect to each other um and that gives you that disconnection gives you that creative headspace absolutely And I think the I think the other thing that young people always need to be told is is there's plenty of time. <laughs> it's not you know I I always say that to younger artists that theatre but every art form is a marathon not a sprint. It's about sustaining something over an entire lifetime. It's not because I think the the thing you discover about um, success or perceived success is that there's no such thing as enough because once you achieve one mm-hmm. thing then you want to get on with achieving something else so you don't want to be defined by success as other people see it you you want to be happy in yourself and and in what you do um as opposed to being judged by some exterior viewpoint um and i think part of that is is about encouraging young people to be patient 
and you know to 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 engage with as much of the world around them as they can um because it's i don't know i think we're probably in in for a pretty uh in for a pretty interesting and possibly rough ride over the rest of this century and um those generations who are coming through next are potentially going to have some really big stuff to deal with that mm. that I think uh, our generation and particularly the generation above us um, haven't necessarily wrestled with strongly enough um, in terms of the way that we exist on the planet. Um, but, yeah, I, I just think reading, music, spending time with other yeah. people, it's hard to go past. Hard to be immersed and bored yeah. at that time. Yeah, it's, it's learning, how to, learning how to be bored. Yeah. Well, I, that's an interesting one. It's yeah. something that come out of these interviews of um, like people are good at jumping from one thing to the next, but yes. at the time it doesn't, they don't kind of build up any richness of understanding or, yeah. or even just time to just collect their thoughts, really. Yeah. So it, it, it actually is scary. I think that our sense is that there's more and more opportunity than ever before, but at the same time anxiety levels are going up and distraction yeah. and times... We're busier than ever, but we're actually yeah. not. So. We become convinced that there's endless amounts that we have to keep up with when actually there isn't more information to consume before. It's just that more versions of it are available to us. So that kind of that whole news cycle thing is incredibly destructive when really when you think about it, I, I remember travelling to, to France in, I don't know, 2004, Five, no, 2007, um, and that we didn't have internet at the place we were staying and so the only news I was getting was once a week I'd get the Guardian Weekly, which mm. used to be still used to be printed back then, and I never had any sense of missing out. Mm. I still got all the news. It's just that I got it once a week and yet now, I, and I have the habit as badly as anyone of just the continual checking and rechecking just in case something has happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you've answered our final question in these of how can people find you, not on social media. No. They'll probably go to State Theatre's website. <laughs> they can find me at State Theatre Company. Someone will find me. All right. Good on you. Thank you, Geordie. That's Thanks, Jason. Jason here to say goodbye until next time. I would love any thoughts or comments you might have on today's show. Message me via Twitter or other social media at Jason Dunstone. If you're interested in receiving our every Friday same time emails on everything human-centered, customer-focused, entrepreneurialism and thinking different, popular articles by me, the Square Holes team and special guests who have included Professor Barry Bergen and Christy Anthony, please go to squareholes.com forward slash blog to read and join our email list where you can also find more information on each episode of Real People. Please subscribe to Real People via iTunes or your favourite podcast platform. And while you're there, please leave a review. If you would like to learn more about Squareholes, the agency I founded in 2004 to conduct and publish customised exploratory research on key markets and population segments, please visit squareholes.com or via LinkedIn or other social media. Squareholes is a proud sponsor of the arts, including but not limited to the State Theatre Company of South Australia and the Adelaide Film Festival. We've been research sponsors for more than a decade for those two and and we're involved in a number of other companies. If you're a business or government leader, please consider getting involved 
and sponsoring the arts. I've certainly gained a huge amount personally from my involvement with Patch Theatre and Square Holders. Arts partnerships are some of the most rewarding relationships we've had. For example, our small role in the Adelaide Film Festival has helped or played a small part in producing 43 feature-length films, 30 short films and 13 cross-platform art and moving image projects. Uh, And it is great to uh, take our partners and and team members along to different arts experiences and just sort of to, uh, to encourage our team members and our clients to to experience different cultures through the arts or think differently and even just that whole what does it take to produce a film or a play and raising money so that just the being involved in those companies has been so um, so rewarding probably surprisingly so when we first became involved in 2008 2009 with state theater and then the film festival I encourage you to get out and explore your local arts and festivals. The arts are a critical part of any strong, creative, positive culture around the world. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Uru.